Hello and welcome to the Accounting and Regulatory Updates from the 2019 Not-for-Profit Forum podcast series. In this first episode, Bridget Noonan, partner at Clearline Consulting, examines areas where financial statement disclosures can be improved to provide understandable information in a move away from clutter and towards clarity. And now, here's Bridget's presentation. So within the profession, you know, it's been a number of years where we just see over and over again this this challenge of what the value of financial statements is, whether we're talking about, you know, is historical costs the right basis? Are these financial statements meaningful? You know, what's the value of an audit? What's the value of assurance? And you keep hearing this kind of dialogue going across all kinds of different sectors. And in my role as an audit partner and as a consultant in BC, I work with a lot of the third parties. I work with a lot of the ministries, the law society, the real estate council, uh, BC housing. And it becomes very apparent that after you see hundreds and hundreds of sets of financial statements coming from different organizations, all sizes, all types of different audit firms, that they're failing to tell a story, right? Like you kind of get into a financial statement, I wanna read it, I wanna start with note one, know what your purpose is, right, from our last presentation. I want to go from there, and I want to understand what you do, how you do it, you know, how you're reporting it, what your results were, what your risks are, and not seeing that now. And I think with the complexity in business, with the complexity in the accounting standards, we're starting to get a a process where a lot of sets of financial statements have, have issues within them, and whether it's clutter or whether it's it's jargon or whether it's just an inability to actually communicate with another human who is not an accountant or a CPA. Um, <laughs> and you know, and, I, and I, really, I really do enjoy it and I enjoy reading a set of financial statements. And this session is really about poking a little bit of fun at ourselves. I'm gonna show you some sample notes. I'm gonna show you some of the statements we use. I'm gonna speak to you how a CPA speaks to another CPA, and I wanna imagine, I want you to imagine that you're talking to your mom. She would just be looking at you sideways, like what happened to you? You used to be such a normal person, right? And once you hear it, and once you really hear it back, I think it can be entertaining. So I hope that's the spirit in which you take this presentation. And that when you're going through and you're looking at your financial statements that you're considering what types of changes you could make. So who in the room has involvement in the financial statements? You're doing, you're reviewing, you're critiquing, right? You're auditing, every every one of us. And it's all of these different layers that's adding to one of the different problems, okay? So we'll get started and, uh, and I hope you can see what I see when you see some of these sample notes. Okay, so the conversation is not here. The conversation is not new. The conversation has been going for years. It's around the world, right? This is not a Canadian phenomenon. It's not a North American phenomenon. It's every country in every world who has this structure of an accounting accounting standards and assurance standards is talking about the same things. Within that, there's so many international projects the International, the Federation of Accountants, IFAC, and IFRS, and the International Accounting Standards Board has been working on a disclosure initiative since 2004, and they have a lot of movement. 
They've uh, amended their IAS-1, their financial statement presentation standard, to give us more flexibility, to say let's not be so rigid in where we put all these notes. We have CPAB and we have the Canadian Securities Administrators talking about performance measurements, KPIs. If the value's not in the financial statements, what else can we give you? We have CPA Canada always, um, and, and in tandem with the Institute of Scotland, talking about how we audit. What's the value of audit? Is it the value of auditing on historical financial statements, or are we gonna move this to auditing these KPIs and performance measurements? We have the Accounting Standards Boards, you know, kind of hot off the presses. We have this draft of how to report performance measures. And how are we gonna take a brand new standard like the performance measures and go through and say, what should be reported through performance measures mechanisms and what should be reported through historical financial statements? And how are these gonna interlink? How are they going to interface with each other? Are they gonna complement each other or are they really gonna take away from one or the other? We have the Audit and Assurance Standards Board now talking, okay, well, a new accounting standard means now we have to figure out how to audit it. So we'll go through and we'll try to figure out how to, we're gonna audit um, these performance measures. We have New Zealand and Australia governments and they've really been looking at how to really find some value in the disclosure of financial statements and how to get rid of some of the issues that's within them. My favorite, uh, the Chartered Financial Analysts and the Financial Reporting Council out of the UK. These two organizations publish the best research papers on the usability of financial statements and they come at it from a perspective of the users not the auditors, not management. They have transparency documents, they have materiality documents, they have a cutting the clutter document, which talks about the behavioral biases, kind of the cognitive bias that's playing, playing havoc within the financial statement disclosures. And they also talk about louder than words, how words on a PDF piece of paper might not be the best way to communicate with everybody in today's world. So these two organizations are absolutely my favorite if you're looking for any literature on some of these examples that I provide for you. Okay, so the issues identified, um, they really, within all of this type of research and literature, the issues identified can be really summed up. And so I've picked a couple of the issues. I don't pretend that this issue is not complex and that this little presentation is gonna fix it but it's just to inspire us to start working in the right direction. So jargon. Now, if I was to stand here and say things to you like credit-adjusted risk-free rate. I'm like, okay, like everybody in the room's like, yeah. Other people don't have any idea what that means. <laughs> so if that's the disclosure that we're putting in there. And then we can just keep going a bifurcation of your financial instruments. This is like, this is actually a sentence that comes out of my mouth when I'm talking in the office. Well, just go bifurcate your financial instruments. Like, I mean, this isn't, you know, this goes here, that goes there, this is how you measure them. This is not the terminology to be putting in external documents. Now, we're gonna be sitting in front of boards saying, don't worry, boards, we're just gonna componentize your property. You're gonna do what to my building? 
oh, I'm going to componentize it. It totally makes sense that I'm going to chop it up into all these little pieces, and we're going to account for everything differently. And like, it's, it makes a lot of sense to us. But when you sit back and you're thinking about a board, and a, maybe a mission-based board, or not, not the financial skill-based board member, we got to find a different way to communicate with them. And having them review the external financial statements might not be the way to go. The boilerplate disclosures. When I first started in the profession, which of course was just a few years ago, um, I started with a blank piece of paper and a pen. Honestly, there was, there was one computer for our quad, and I was the junior, so it wasn't mine. And that was how we wrote notes, is we sat with a blank piece of paper and a pen and the handbook beside us. And the handbook gave us this guidance to say, look, this is the things that you have to disclose. These are your minimum disclosures. And then I would just say, okay, well, for this entity, this note makes sense. And there was a lot of, there was a lot of going back and forth on that, of saying, it's a very entity specific. It wasn't a boilerplate. Whereas now we have a sample set of financial statements that are published by the profession and they go through IT providers, service providers, and they're distributed en masse to all kinds of external accounting firms. And so everybody's financial statements are starting to look a little bit the same, or perhaps a little bit like your audit firm's sample financial statements. The relevance, the inclusion of immaterial items, this, this, this incessant need to add but not take away, very type A, not our fault. We are accountants. Like we can, only, we can only control so much of our natural behavior, but we have to think about it as we go through. And then just being able to really make sure that there's no redundancies, inconsistencies, and that the transparency in the financial statements is providing the information that we really need. Now, this is the, this is the accounting framework, the fundamental framework of IFRS. So it's coming into Canada, but this is the platform on which we should be looking towards our financial statements. So I think we're doing a good job on completeness because everything's there. We have all these checklists that encourage this sense of completeness. I think we're doing a good job on confirmation value. The auditors have audited it and we have some, we have some reliance and some faith in those numbers. The other ones, I think that we have some issues. I think that we need to talk about neutrality. I think that as accountants who grew up in Canada, we're all so conservative. How many of us still kind of live by the rule that assets are as low as you can get them and liabilities are as high as you can get them? Assets are long-term and liabilities are current, unless you can prove otherwise. It's not a neutral platform. It's, it's not, it's not communicating neutrality, it's communicating conservatism. And so when this framework comes into Canada, we're going to have some work to do to unlearn some very learned behaviors. So for, in the meantime, we do have an accounting handbook section. It happens to be one of my favorites. It's section 1400 or 1401, depending on the accounting framework. And it's just fair presentation of financial statements. It says, look, the fair presentation of financial statements means that you're, me you're meeting the minimum disclosures, which we always do, and the, you know, the audit firms and the accounting firms are behind us to make sure that's happening, but that you're providing sufficient information in a clear and understandable manner. So it's right there. Most of us haven't read this section since we wrote the UFI or the CFI or whatever our final examination was. 
but this is the platform that we should be working on at this point in time. And when I go through and I think about what happened with disclosures, because I always want to know why. It's what makes me a good auditor. I ask why all the time. It's my, my number one question, why? And I look back to when we moved from part five, from generally accepted accounting principles, into ASPE and into not-for-profit, which sits on top of ASPE, the accounting standards for private enterprises. And when we did that move, the board reached out to the users and said, what's most important to you in these disclosures? Like, what do we actually have to keep here? Because we don't want to include everything that is an IFRS in the international standards. And the users clearly came back and said, look, it's the top three. I want to know what accounting policies you're choosing. Because there's so many options, any one set of financial statements, I can give you 24 different versions. It's, it's a little bit of a wild, wild west, right? Tell me what you want. I can make it happen as long as the accounting policy is reasonable. But then we look to the risks and uncertainties. And if you think about your financial statements, is it front and center what your critical risks are, how they've changed, and what's going to happen next year? And the uncertainties. And then if there's any unusual event, have we provided the disclosures that the users really need to understand it? And the boards might know, because they're involved in the daily operations, but other people might not. So in essence, you know, the conversation in the profession right now is really about the value of an audit, the cost of an audit, the cost of compliance, or assurance. Whereas perhaps what we need to be dealing with is the value of financial statements because this is what the audit sits on top of. And if the financial statements are valuable, providing the assurance on top of that would presume to be valuable as well. Okay. So for the assurance, a triangle, just making sure that the standards are meeting boards' needs, users' needs. We're dealing with some of the KPIs now that might go through and deal with some of those issues and that the assurance standards are working on how to audit these new accounting requirements. This is going to be really important to keep in mind as the accounting standards change. So Linda Maison is going to be here after lunch, and she's going to tell you about all the changes coming through in the not-for-profit accounting standards. So it'll be really important to make sure that we are meeting these needs as we go forward. The other beautiful thing about a change in accounting standards is it's hard to find that motivation for when you actually change your financial statements. And if you tie it in or link it in with a change in accounting standards, then that works really well. Okay. So now I'm going to go through some examples. This is kind of the most fun I have with this presentation. And just to make it enjoyable for you, I've pulled all of these examples from your publicly available financial statements of attendees for this conference. <laughs> so. All the innocent are protected. I have, I have removed any names of organizations and called you societies or organizations or entities. But if they feel familiar, they might be from your set of financial statements. Um, I, pulled, I pulled 20 sets. Um, and I just, I just want to kind of tell you what I think. And this is just my opinion of looking at financial statements. This is what I do every day is look at financial statements. Out of those 20, five, no comments. No comments, great. You know, maybe a bit of jargon, but great. Good entity-specific disclosures. I knew what was going on. I could figure out from the disclosures what might happen next year based on events that were gonna trigger. 
another five. Not good. Like, just not good. Like, I read them, and I had no idea. No idea what the organization did, what, it, what its risks were. Like, the purpose, I got that in note one. But, but it didn't make sense. Like, throughout, the, throughout reading the document, I was becoming confused. So that's what I mean when it's not good. And the other 10 just had some good, some good chuckles, you know? Oh, well, that doesn't really make sense, but it's okay, you know? Is it materially misstated? I don't know, probably not, but, but definitely could have used some improvement. Okay? So that's what we're doing. So plain language. Let's take a crack at some plain language. I was, um, I was in Las Vegas at an AICPA conference, the American Institute of CPAs. And they had this great big table set up with all these banners and all these documents and all these pamphlets. And it was called the Center for Plain English Accounting. And I got really excited because this stuff excites me. And I thought, finally, we're here. We're here. Somebody's going to help me, help my boards, help my users figure out what in the world we're talking about. So I went up and I was talking to them. And I grabbed the first pamphlet and I read it. Oh, no. We need to buy another subscription to tell the practitioners how to apply their very own standards because they're too complex and confusing. So we, the CPAs, don't actually know how to implement them. I was like, oh, okay. Well, not quite what I was hoping for for my excitement level, but at least there's some documentation out there. But that shows you where we're at, where the profession is now creating services to help us digest our own standards. So it's even more on our responsibility to go through and communicate with users about what we're actually trying to say to them. So being the good Canadian I am, I quickly went to the Fraz Canada website to make sure we had something that was comparable. And we do have these plain language resources underneath all the accounting standards. This is relatively new for CPA, um, uh, well, for the Accounting Standards Board to be putting in the plain documents. They're called in-briefs. So, so we're moving in the right direction, but again, focused at CPAs, not focused at users. Okay. So when I was in school, I struggled with English. That's why I became an accountant, right? <laughs> Math, science, it was good. You know, the subtleties of the English language and how to put proper sentences together, it just kind of escaped me. So how I ended up doing this for a living is beyond me, but that's fine. Um, so when I'm trying to sit with something and make it more simplistic, make it more plain language, I need tools. I need help. Because the one thing that I figured out really quickly is that simplicity is not about using words with fewer syllables. It's about changing the whole structure of the whole paragraph, the whole sentence, the whole story. So this is an example of one that I used, um, and I've, I've used it on some of our notes today. And so we look at some of the categories, and we think, where do you want financial statements to be? Which category do you really want these financial statements to be? I'm not so excited about it being a reader, reader's digest. I'm not super excited about it being tedious and difficult to read. So presumably somewhere in the middle. So I'm kind of looking for some, some areas, maybe 40, 50%. So just want you to like 
just kind of clear your mind for a minute and just listen. And if you need to close your eyes, just do that. I have to take a huge breath to get through the sentence. I'm going to read you one sentence in this note. And I just want you to hear it when somebody says it out loud to you. Okay. Expenditures incurred to acquire, develop, maintain, and enhance intangible resources are recognized as assets only when they are separable or arise from contractual or other legal rights, regardless of whether these rights are transferable or separable, and it is probable that the expected future economic benefits that are attributable to the asset will flow to the organization and the cost can be reliably measured. Anybody? At first, you'll count on your legal degree or an accounting degree. This is... It's insane. It's insane, right? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I wasn't actually going to use that word, but since you threw it out there, it's all good. That is a standard boilerplate note. That is not somebody super smart customizing something, using all kinds of language to make themselves feel better. This is a boilerplate note for intangibles. So if you're thinking about an intangible, what do we actually need to tell people about the accounting policy? What would need to be there? This is like plain language. What would we actually have to say? And that was one sentence of this very long note. Just like, what intangible is it? What is it? What do you have for an intangible? Is it capitalized as an asset or is it expensed? Why would it be one or the other? This is all we need, right? And especially in accounting policy, because there's no choice after you decide whether to expense it, okay? And just to note our readability index, 17.9, which clearly fits into the tedious and tiring to read category, okay? So another fun one, financial instruments. I could beat up on financial instruments for the whole 50 minutes if somebody would let me, but I won't. I'll just kind of focus in on a few key parts. So this note, I just want to kind of scan through it. When I'm looking at these financial statements, there was no indication of related party transactions. So that whole second sentence is unnecessary, including the reference to the actual handbook section, which nobody understands other than CPAs who know the handbook. And then we get to the society subsequently measures investments in equity instruments quoted in an active market and all derivative instruments, except those designated in a qualifying hedging relationship or that are linked to and must be settled by delivery of unquoted equity instruments in another entity at fair value. This organization had no derivatives. This organization didn't touch hedge accounting. This organization had no equity instruments in another entity, right? But these are the standard notes. And so, this, so it becomes so much clutter because when I'm reading this in your financial statements, I am really excited to get to your derivatives. I'm really excited to get to your hedge accounting. Like, I'm waiting for it. Like, it's coming. I can feel it. And then I get to the end, and I'm like, where'd it go? It was, it was right here. It was right in note one, right on the front page. Okay? Readability index, 19.2. Still sitting in the very tedious and tiring category. Okay, so simplicity. This is um, probably the YouTube or like the TED Talk video that inspired this whole thing for me. It's from 2010, it's Alan Siegel. You think he's one of the US leaders in simplicity, plain language. 
And so I don't have the five minutes to play the YouTube video for you, but I wanted you to have the link, and it's worth the five minutes. Goes through, and he just says, look, this is about changing content. It's not about changing words. It's not about taking big, scary words and making them small, little words. It's not how we do it. We have to rethink it. And on this, for the last three years, which honestly, it's taken me three years, and I'm not done yet, I'm trying to get a two-page engagement letter. I'm an auditor. So my engagement letter currently is eight. And how I'm going to get from eight to two pages, I don't know, but I keep working at it. And Alan Siegel did that with a credit application. He did it with a credit application here. And he shows it. And he shows how he did it. And I'm thinking, how can this be so difficult? What do I need to actually put in my engagement letter if I'm going to audit your organization? What's your responsibility? The financial statements. What's my responsibility? The auditor's report. You know, if we get mad at each other, let's be able to break this up. Let's be able to divorce reasonably, civilly. Let's figure out what province we're going to do that in. Let's define what's yours, your entity-specific information. Let's define what's mine, my working papers. Let me throw in a limitation of liability. It'll make my department feel a lot better, so we can talk about that. Right? But what else really needs to be there? Some privacy, some electronic communication. So I'm, like, I'm, I'm going to keep working on it, and I want to get a two-page engagement letter that's written in English so that any board could understand who's responsible for what. So let's look at some terminology. So jargon, two, two categories for me that I want to go through. The first is jargon. I've already showed you so many sample notes and, and some phrases and, and words that we use that those external to, really external to audit firms or external to larger departments in larger organizations are not overly familiar with. But then it's also the inconsistency in the terminology that we use, the descriptors. And, and I'll show you a few examples of some of those on the next slide. So jargon. Part three of the CPA Canada Handbook, Accounting as Issued by the Accounting Standards Board in Canada, which are part of Canadian Generally Accepted Accounting Principles. Standard note, note one, note two, and all this reference to this resource that only those of us who have spent time in public practice or in larger organizations drafting financial statements even know what we're referring to. So when I find references to the CPA Canada Handbook in a set of financial statements, I've found that it's usually one of two reasons. It's because there was a templated note developed when the standard first came out, because we don't really know what they're going to look like. It's a brand new standard, here's a templated note. So this came out when we transitioned to, to the accounting standards for private enterprises and not-for-profits. But then after that, I find, and then it just rolls forward. We just forget to update it, so then that's fine. But the other, re the other time when I see this in here is when I read a note, and for all intents and purposes, management might as well have written. As required by my auditors, here is the note that makes absolutely no sense and adds no value to these financial statements, and under duress, I am including them in my financial statement. <laughs> like, that might as well be what this says, right? 
And I've seen so many different versions of that. They always give me a nice little chuckle because I can kind of anticipate what that relationship is and, and that back and forth between how management feels about the necessity to meet minimum requirements and how the auditor feels about it. Okay. So now I want to go through some descriptors. Some descriptors of the possibility of occurrence. So the possibility of occurrence really should just be, on a scale of 1 to 100, how likely is this thing going to happen? Okay. So let's put some words behind how we might define that in a set of financial statements in various sections. It might be possible, might be extremely possible, it might be normally, it might be commonly, rarely certain or highly probable that this is going to happen, It virtually certain, it might be almost certain, it might be likely. It might be unlikely, it might be rare. It might be that we expect it, but we're not sure. It might be most likely. So when you're looking through these financial statements, in every one of the handbook sections, all of those words are pulled out of, out of the handbook because they're all used in different sections. More likely than not, virtually certain, right? And we, we tend to know what these mean. What is virtually certain on one, one to 100? It's over 90. We all know that. Uh, but, but nobody else outside of this room has any idea. More likely than not, what is that? 1 to 100. It's 51. I mean, we know that, right? And so, but that's, these are the types of descriptors we find in financial statements. So then you sit and you talk to a normal person, not a CPA, about what the cost is. What did that cost you? And what does somebody say? They're pretty, they're pretty confident in understanding what it costs them, what cost is. You know, I gave them money, that's what it cost me, we're all good, okay? Are you sure it's not identifiable or amortized cost or average cost or recurring cost or discounted cost or allowable cost or historical cost? Maybe it's direct cost, depreciable cost, and my favorite, deemed cost, because we don't know, so we'll just pick something. Incremental, acquisition, variable, nominal, non-recurring, maybe it's past service cost, maybe it's a fixed cost, a replacement cost, a capitalized cost, or maybe it's just an estimate. And so this is what's going on, and in any one set of financial statements, you will find at least 10 to 15 of those different descriptors. And so understanding how somebody else is supposed to understand them is interesting, okay? So let's move on to some immaterial or some unnecessary disclosures. This is this is where I'm encouraging to take your financial statements and cross some things out. Talk to your auditors first. I'm not trying to, to get in the way of anything here. Anybody kind of feel like this is a recognizable note? Your organization's capital management policy? At least one of you does. But. Um, I see it quite often because it used to be a requirement. It used to be a handbook requirement in the not-for-profit standards that we had to disclose this. Now, it's no longer a requirement for capital management. So if you go through and you want to include it, I'm all fine. But as your auditor, I'd like to see proof of your comprehensive risk management framework and how you're monitoring it. And uh, speaking for my own small, small not-for-profit organizations, this isn't on the priority list. Right? This, this just is not on the priority list to document this. Okay. Impairment of property, plant, and equipment. Um, 
It's, it's a fine accounting policy. I have no problem with it. But is there an option of when and how you impair your tangible capital assets? Do you have a choice of how and when that happens and how you measure it? It's not an accounting policy option, so it doesn't have to be there. And I see this note included, and I think, I can't wait to get to your impairment. And I get to your statement of operations, and there's no impairment, right? So, so I can kind of put that together. But there is not a requirement. The other problem with this note, if it does happen to be yours, is this is a private enterprise note, not a not-for-profit note. So because it deals with expected future cash flows rather than kind of this contribution. So if we were looking to replace that with something that was maybe a bit more reasonable or, or clear for a not-for-profit, maybe impairment clearly just is when the asset is no longer contributing value, we're going to write it down. Okay. Uh, foreign currency translation. This one's fun. Um, how many people in the room are dealing with their self-sustaining or their integrated foreign subsidiary? And you're consolidating it into your financial statements? So that's the, only, that's the only time when you have a choice between foreign currency translation methods. Other than that, we're dealing with US dollar transactions that are converted to Canadian dollar transactions on the date they occur. There's no option, there's no choice. This is not a required accounting policy unless you have that foreign subsidiary. Again, something that I'm really excited to read about when I see this accounting policy note of getting to your foreign subsidiary. Asset retirement obligations, another one, it's not an option. If you have an asset retirement obligation that needs to be recognized, you're gonna recognize it the same way, you're gonna measure it, there's no option here. So I read through and I say, okay, so now I'm looking for an asset retirement obligation, I get to the end, I say, oh, I didn't see an asset retirement obligation. It puts me into this position of thinking, should there be one? So I get back. And I, I talk to management, or I talk to the audit firm, or I talk to whoever I'm consulting with, and I say, look, this note makes me feel like you should have something. So, like, why is it here? Like, what are we doing? And I say, oh, okay, no problem, I can fix that. <laughs> Nine times out of ten, that's the result of my conversations. Here's this great big note that I don't need, and don't worry, I don't have it, right? And so it's this, it's this kind of human nature sense of not wanting to exclude things, but to include them. Right. Why is it happening? Carry forward year over year. Um, a, a lot of it happens because a lot of us deal with IFRS, a more complex standard, and you know, we see it all day there, and we think, well, this can't hurt, right? More is better, and so that kind of thought process uh, the governance structure definitely has some issues here just because of all the layers of review. And everybody reviews these financial statements with their own bias and kind of, uh, you know, whenever you've dealt with an issue, you kind of want, don't want it to become an issue in another set of financial statements. So you keep adding layers of review, keeps adding more and more note disclosures. The ease of inclusion, I think, and, and kind of human nature, I think, it's easier to say that you've used your professional judgment and included something than really getting comfortable with the fact that, yeah, I have it, but it's not material, and I'm gonna own that, right? And so there becomes this ease of inclusion rather than exclusion. Some entity-specific disclosures. Again, back to financial instrument risk disclosures. 
Um, this is very typical of what I see in financial instrument risk disclosures. After this year, it shouldn't be typical because the Accounting Standards Board issued a new standard that clearly said, you know, you shouldn't be using boilerplate disclosures for entity-specific risks. And this clearly is actually in realm of our readability index, but it's there because these are merely definitions. So time and time again, I just see definitions inside of market risk. What is market risk? Where I'm supposed to be dealing with what market risk is to this entity, so I can compare it to another entity, and how that changes year over year. An example of an interest rate risk note that was really tailored, very specific to the entity. This is more so what these notes are supposed to be saying. And if you don't have an interest rate risk, you don't need to disclose that you don't have an interest rate risk. Okay? So in, there's enough information here, there's enough terminology, there's, there's, an, there's enough facts for me to really say, look, when these loans come due, can I get them at these similar rates or not? And that's the type of information that I'm trying to analyze from these financial statements. On the use of estimates, again, very boilerplate note. Um, this one actually is a part five sample note, GAP. It's not actually compliant with ASPE and not-for-profit standards. Um, the giveaway is kind of the contingent assets and liability section there. But it is supposed to be highlighting where material uncertainties exist and where they're gonna change in the near term, which would be over the next year. So we give the comments, look, you're supposed to be specific. So then people look at their financial statements and come up with some things that are presumably estimates and then include the specific comment underneath the tailored note. And I just, most times I look at this and I think we're just quite not on mark yet. How is the estimated useful life of property, plant, and equipment significant estimate, or how is it gonna change materially unless you have capital-intensive operations? And so many of us have, don't have capital-intensive operations. So yeah, it's an estimate, but is it going to have a significant impact? And that amortization of the deferred contributions, last time I checked, the recognition of rent inducements was over the term of the lease, so it didn't seem like that was really a big estimate. And I don't know, and I know that some of you do actually have an issue, or potentially an issue with allowance for doubtful accounts, but 90% of you don't, right? And so this is becoming, again, just kind of generic disclosure. Okay, so some clutter. So I took just a bit of a readability experience, experiment. I just took one set of standard um, accounting policy disclosures, and I ran them through a readability index. Not intended to actually be able to read that. Um, 11 accounting policies, almost 1,000 words, readability index of 25.3. Just very typical standard accounting policies. And I just used some of the procedures and policies we've talked about. And I've just reworded them, I reworded them, I got rid of things that didn't need to be there, I got rid of immaterial things, and we came down, seven accounting policies, less than 60% of the words, 405. Readability index almost doubles, okay? And so 
and it didn't take very much. I just got rid of some of those accounting policies and aren't requirements. I reworded some things. And then moving forward, that was only in note one of the financial statements, right? This is just the accounting policies. So there's six, seven, eight, nine more pages of notes that could go through this experience, this experiment. And so you're probably looking at 15,000 words in these financial statements that could be cut down significantly and considerably. Another area that we could think about um, fixing or just think about some presentation options that might help the usability or the readability of financial statements is really how we order things, how things are put into the statements. So Cocular is a um, public company in Australia, and they really adopted the international changes for usability of financial statements and clutter. And this is the accounting policy note that they had in their financial statements. So I've reordered certain sections. I've removed immaterial disclosures. I've considered applying materiality throughout these disclosures, and accounting policies aren't way off by themselves. Everything's integrated together. So if you think about a not-for-profit set of financial statements and how I would like to kind of see them going forward, is think about all the different places you talk about revenue and how you could put that story together in a much more concise manner. You have an accounting policy, you know, deferral method, restricted fund method, plus all the revenue recognition methods around your private type revenue. You might have fund accounting, which might describe three, four, or five or more funds about where all this revenue goes and, and how it's allocated into your financial statements. You're gonna have some kind of contribution. Do you recognize contributions in kind? Do you recognize volunteer time? That's gonna affect your revenues. You're gonna have deferred revenue. You're gonna have potentially amounts receivable, grants receivable, and you're also going to have maybe government assistance and maybe economic dependence. And think if you could gather all that information and just kind of put it in one note and say, here's revenue. Here's the total picture of revenue for this organization. And then it starts to make a lot more sense in regards to the future of that. Another thing we can do is stop being so obsessed with dollars, right? Like this rounding to the dollars on every set of financial statements, I don't feel like it's necessary, right? And it's nothing that you, that you could easily change this in your external financial statements. And you see what it does is it very clearly highlights that 10 of these line items are so immaterial that they don't need to be here. And then when you're looking at these sets of financial statements after they're cleared up, you just don't have that sense of visual clutter. You want more detail? Knock your boots out. Add 10 schedules, right? Add all the schedules you want to financial statements. To, to communicate information to certain users, certain funders, or provide all the detail around these groupings. So then when you get to the not-for-profit specific considerations, deciding whether or not to use fund accounting can fix a lot of these presentation issues for the boards. Even if you're using deferral method, by including a couple of funds on your financial statements, it can really help them decipher what information the financial statements are trying to communicate to them. Really taking a look at nature versus function. So in your operating expenses, the nature of an operating expense would just be you know, rent, payroll, uh, amortization. 
versus function, fundraising, human resources, program, program A, program B, and actually picking one. Because right now in our profession, most financial statements are this hybrid of these two things jumbled together. So if we really picked one, the, the one that's most important to the main users, you could present the other way in a schedule to your financial statements. So you could be meeting the needs of all users by just picking one of the ways to present the operation operating expenses. Schedules and tables and notes, your auditors will have lots of different options for you. We can do a supplementary report, we can call it unaudited, we can call it audited, we can yank it out and call it an audit of other stuff. When we get to this performance indicators, we can go audit those things, we can audit your annual report, we can audit whatever you want. The audit world has opened wide up to you. So however you need to present this information in a usable manner, your auditors are ready and have the tools to support that, if it needs to be audited. Triggers, because there's not that many auditors in the room, but I do really want to spend a few minutes to kind of inform everybody else what's happening inside the audit firm, which might be contributing to some of these issues. It's really easy to have a template, right? And it, as, a, as a review, ease of review. If I have a standard template, and the financial statements hit my desk for my review, and they're in my standard template, I'm fast. Tick, 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 it's good. And then I'm saving you money, and I'm adding value, and I'm doing something else, so I want to do that. But within that, the financial statements start looking like Clearline's financial statements, or like GT's financial statements, or like KPMG's financial statements, instead of the entity's financial statements. Right? And so it's really, management really has to take ownership. And especially when firms are supporting you by the provision of sample notes to get you started, like they really need to be entity specific and tailored. Okay? Checklists. Um, we all have our feeling about checklists. Checklists have worked in our profession to train our students. That was the intention of them, that was the purpose of them. Everything got so complex, the students needed reminders of what was in there. The handbook used to be really small when I had it memorized, now I need some triggers to figure out what handbook I'm in and what that one requires. But these checklists fail to come with a scoping mechanism for materiality. They don't have anything on top of them that says, yeah, that's a requirement, but don't worry, it's not, a, it's not applicable for this entity. So we get this real sense of completeness, which then encourages this, you know, just put it in, right? And so to really use financial statement presentation and disclosure checklists, we have to layer a materiality concept on top of them. Just like your organization, we have governance. We have levels of governance. We have my, you know, my staff, we have my manager, we might have my senior manager, we have first partner, and then we have the dreaded second partner, and then we have the extra dreaded like quality control internal, and the super, super dreaded external monitoring is coming in, CPAB, the profession, right? They're monitoring our firm um, on how we're doing with our standards, right? And so on top of all of your levels of additions to your financial statements, the firm itself has all of its levels. And then I want to talk to you about the ease of inclusion. As an auditor, when you choose to not disclose something, 
that's a requirement for whatever basis it is. It's immaterial, it's not relevant. I have to go through a process of saying, I have two choices. I can convince you to include it, or I can write a memo acknowledging that it's required but you didn't include it. I can document my professional judgment about whether that is or is not appropriate, and if I can live with it. And then I'll record it on my statement of unadjusted misstatements, and then I'll communicate with management for you to again confirm that you don't want that disclosure. And then I'll take it to the board and my report to the board, and I'll communicate with them that you didn't do this and that my opinion is that it's not materially misstated. So if I'm sitting at my office and I'm like, I don't really want to increase your fees this year, what's going to be my likely method? Get it in there. Just put it in. Right? If you, don't mind, if you don't care and I don't care, then let's just get it in there because that's how we move forward quickly. That's how we try to keep the cost down. But it's not working in the benefit of financial statements in their entirety for our profession. Okay, so what can we do? Make sure we're telling a story. Like, I really want a story. I really just want to open up the financial statements. I might just start with the notes. And I want note one to tell me what you do. And I want the accounting policies to tell me which ones you've selected. And I want the notes to not contradict each other, right? And to just lay out this story such that I can see what's going on in your organization. Use plain English tools. There's lots of them. That readability.io website has 20 different tools. I just picked one. Uh, remove the boilerplate. Provide the entity specifics. Remove, remove the immaterial or the unnecessary information. Reconsider your presentation decisions and consider other reporting mechanisms. And we've already gone through some of those, all the different ways we can package information and present it. Why now? It's always a story. Why are you making me do this? Like, why would you ask me to do this now? I don't have the resources. I'm tapped out. This isn't, <clears throat> this isn't burning for me and my organization. But the accounting standards are changing. The accounting standards for not-for-profits will see the most significant rehaul since they've been in for 25 years. And it's going to affect every one of your organizations in a very serious and drastic manner. And so this is the point in time when we can take the time to not include the boilerplate disclosures around these changes. Auditing changes. 2018 will be a really great audit for you. Ten of our Canadian auditing standards have changed to force us to pay more attention to disclosures. So when your auditors come and they start suggesting some changes to your disclosures that have been rolling forward for year upon year, you know where that's driving from. This will be the most significant change in the, in the back scenes functioning of an audit this year. The forward-facing change to audits this year is the auditor reporting. The auditor report's going to be longer, more specific. You might find you're in discussions about key matters, disclosing key matters. I, I don't presume that the not-for-profit sector will, will utilize that um, en masse, but some of you might hear that discussion. And this other information. So when I know that most of you give your annual report to your auditors at some point, whatever you publish on your financial statements. We take a quick read of it. We're just looking for inconsistencies. We're looking for, like, to make sure that 
the story doesn't sound too much like a really positive MDNA behind a really dreadful set of financial statements, right? So we're just finding some balance there. But that's all we're really doing. But if you need more, if you need more assurance, if you want that audited, now the platform has been opened up that included in your auditor's report, we would say we audited your annual information. So again, I don't think that it's a need for a lot of people, but as we move forward with these key performance indicator measurements, you might need that annual report to be audited. Okay. So the framework for reporting measures, this, this project in and of itself has all the markings of something that's gonna significantly change our presentation, sorry, change our profession. Because this is one of the first steps where we're gonna start auditing all kinds of things outside of historical financial statements. So this is an accounting framework. This is for management to give you a basis for which you can present this information. I've noted a couple of webinars on the bottom of that slide, so if you're interested in hearing about it, then uh, you can go to CPA Canada's website for that. And then as we go through, Canada's gonna adopt the international framework for accounting. So once we get onto this conceptual framework, we're gonna have to integrate the thought processes behind IFRS, and I'm presuming that the presentation and materiality and how we're presenting our financial statements may come with that, okay? So those are kind of all the changes that I see coming. And believe me, like I know this plain language simple is, is harder. It's harder to document these financial statements in, in pulling back plain language and being simple. So, so I always like to use Steve Jobs as my inspiration because over the last 10 years, I've watched my kids grow up on Apple at six months old, swiping left. Six months, they could swipe left on that, on that phone. And, and it's because the thought process was made for it to be simple. So. I hope you have some inspiration for your own financial statements, how we can tailor them, get rid of some clutter, get rid of some immaterial items, and really get away from the boilerplate disclosures. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the first episode of the Accounting and Regulatory Updates from the 2019 Not-for-Profit Forum podcast series. 